Yeah, it's interesting watching the right weaponize discussions that happen in earnest on the left um, when they're clearly simply being absorbed by the right as a, a mechanism for trying to control conversation. I mean, I think the only thing that really stood out for me today was, uh, uh, I think it was Melania Trump saying that she's the most <laughs> yeah. bullied woman in America. I think it's she like, said she was the, oh, the most bullied person on the planet, I think was her. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right oh about God. that. It's like, this is the group that spent years mocking the even the idea of bullying um, and right. suggesting right. that um, people who are legitimately traumatized and in some cases uh, actively uh, and aggressively uh, attacked by online sources have been mocked as being you know snowflakes or not having a backbone. They were told to get thicker skin. But as soon as it becomes an effective tool of trying to control conversation that you don't want to have, all of a sudden bullying becomes something significant. Well, and wasn't anti-bullying supposed to be her big first lady initiative? She was she was she she made this big thing about how she was going to go out there and combat online bullying and in-person bullying and stuff. Was she talking about herself that entire time? Or her husband? (laughs) I'm being so bullied. Like, I need to stop online bullying of me. Uh, Everybody (laughs) else, I don't don't really care. Uh, But once it gets me, I'm really concerned with... Well, it was also happening with Kavanaugh where they were saying this man is being bullied. It's like Dr. Ford can't live at home anymore because of the amount of... Uh, violent threats that are coming their way. I don't think Kavanaugh has sure. the same sure. problem. No. Yeah, no, probably not. Well, he not. went out there and he said, like, my life has been ruined because of this. And then they asked him the other day, and he was like, how does he feel? He's like, oh, it's feeling great. Uh, I'm yeah. on the Supreme Court now, like, doing fine. <laughs> uh, turns out, uh, you know, sorry for all that life-ruining hyperbole. You know, it's just it's just politics, you know. Had I realized... Brendan, I think... Had I realized you can get a job by crying and screaming at the people you're talking to, I might have tried that a lot earlier. Um, It really was an astonishing spectacle. Yeah, every single time I go into a job interview and I talk about how much I like beer (laughs) and I break down crying and I yell at the interviewer... Uh, they just end up calling security. Right. I, well, they're I, like, your background check had some inconsistencies in it, and you're like, this is a Clinton conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. George I'll, Soros, maybe I'll try it up. next time. Welcome back to the Liquid Flannel Podcast from Arlington, Texas. I am Matthew Hodges, joined by my very good friend and co-host in Omaha, Nebraska, Brendan Williams. Brendan, what's up? Hello, hello. Back again. We are back again, and we are joined by a very special guest this week from Minneapolis, uh, titan of Twitter uh, and amazing author Max Sparber. Max, we are so delighted to have you with I'm, us. I'm thrilled to be on the show. It's it's a it's a small show, uh, but we're hoping that you will lend us some credibility. I can try. Success. <laughs> it's already it's already happened. It's it's already happened. We we've been we've been billing you all week. <laughs> No, it's great to have you with us, and um, before we get to our uh, Spooktober special, uh, the reason that I, uh, uh, you know, the main reason that I invited you on, I thought, um, you are you are on Twitter all the time. I see you in the mentions of many political tweets uh, that, you know, if you're on, if you're online, you've seen Max Barber around because uh, you, you are constantly, you're kind of a, you're a political curmudgeon. Um, what, <laughs> what do you think the about best possible way. being online? <laughs> yeah. In, in the best possible way. Absolutely. What do you think about being super online in this political environment? I mean, I think it's unbelievably toxic, but I'm, I'm also unbelievably addicted, so I can't. Uh, I've, I've tried to tamp it down. I took uh, Twitter and Facebook off of my phone 
But that still means that during the day when I'm on my regular computer, I, I see it all the time. Um, I, I've been trying to modify my behavior on there just for my own mental health. Um, I used to just like to find people that I thought were acting like a fool and yell at them. Um, right. I still do. I still do that when I feel like it's a big enough fool, but yeah, the, the dunk game is, is, uh, it's addictive. Yeah. It really is. It's, it's enticing. Yeah, I mean, it used to be, when I first got on Twitter, and I think I was one of the first people in Minneapolis to do so, um, it got exciting because it was a place where you'd see news first. Um, but now I feel like it's just these warring si- propaganda sides. Um, and then, you know, there's I try and follow people who are creative and do interesting things and promote their work as well. And, um, you know, just to fight back against that particular kind of noise but uh, you know i've 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 gained a few followers because i write short fiction and i do you know sort of fun things on twitter but sometimes i'll go to a like a politician's comment and i'll just say one thing in response to them and the next day i've got 700 new followers so (laughs) twitter definitely seems to like that more than than my creative work well, but you're you're incredibly clever on Twitter, and Twitter tends to be it's a game of uh, like one upsmanship when it comes to dunking or yeah. uh, you know getting the best of somebody. And you're you're very good at that. You're very clever, uh, and so you you get a good dig in. So I'm not surprised that you you get a lot of traffic out of yeah. that. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I mean, I'm got on the web very early on and you you might remember the early days of the internet it was just the wild west and so you either became a gunslinger or walked away in disgust <laughs> and it's right. if you've ever seen a western it's really hard to hang those guns back up so <laughs> i feel like i feel like i'm in a bar and i'm hearing people just clomp down their drink and i think ah, here we go here we go gotta reach for the sidearms that's a that's a perfect metaphor for our to to bring to our show, which is all about you know like prairie justice and politics. <laughs> yeah. so, it's the old yeah, that's amazing. the old uh, old west bar of the of the internet, Twitter for sure. The old saloon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, while we have you here, and before we get into our our spooky content uh, for the episode, we had a couple of different. Um, a couple of different Great Plains-oriented uh, political discussions to have. Uh, I, I'm, I've been really interested in watching what's been going on with Jason Kander, who was a he was a candidate for mayor in Kansas City, who dropped out recently. He he was considered to be a front runner in that race, and then dropped out because of. Um, he, he's a, uh, an ex service member. He's a veteran who has been dealing with depression right. and PTSD. And I think that's a really interesting thing to see in this, particularly in this age of politics where showing any kind of weakness is, it's a death sentence, uh, under, you know, this, we've got this Trumpian style of politics where it's always, you're on the attack, attack, attack all the time and Jason Kander stepped down because he's dealing with his own stuff. I've been curious uh to to have a conversation with with both of you about that. Well, I I think it's I think I mean it seems like it was the right thing for him to do. I think it's incredibly courageous on his part. Um you know, the Absolutely. governor here in Minnesota, Mark Dayton has had uh has had a struggle with depression and it's still used against him all the time. His political opponents frequently refer to him um, in terms of his depression. And uh, so I think you're right that, that any public display of, of weakness, especially weakness that's been weaponized like mental health is going to be used against you for your entire career. Um, yeah, so I, I I don't have any much to say beyond it, except that I was very impressed by the fact that he's he's doing what I think we all need to be doing right now, which is making sure that we're we're healthy. 
because this is this time this is a time that's putting a lot of stress on on a lot of people's mental health yeah i think that's very true and it's pretty amazing to me and i think in a lot of ways it reflects very positively on him in that he knew that you know he wasn't his best self and i think it is very admirable that he decided hey even though you know this is a really hard decision i know a lot of people are going to be very disappointed he said the best thing to do is to you know not go into a position where i know i'm not going to be able to give it my best and so it is pretty amazing and i think it's a really amazing contrast between what a lot of other politicians are doing which is you know saying hey it it doesn't matter you know whatever i have going on victory is the only thing that matters and if i'm not going to be able to do my best job well whatever you know that, that's not as long as i win the election and i think it's it's right. very telling but it's also you know it's one of those things where your your honesty with yourself and with the public um yeah i think you're right there is a lot of potential for people to say, well, you know, he said he had this. And so that's just disqualifying to him, you know, forever. If you're one of his political opponents, uh, you had to be, you know, secretly uh, cheering, <laughs> saying, you know, now I have attack ads forever that I can run against my political rival. Ha ha. Right. Well, and and Brendan, my I guess my my bigger question is, so this guy, he's got good politics as far as I can tell. And he has stepped down out of this race because of this reason. Do you think that in the current political environment, he can ever rally? Do you think that he'll ever come back as a as a politician? Or is this is this universally disqualifying? I don't, for I don't him? think that it is. And I think he's still pretty he's a pretty young guy. And he was kind of considered like a rising star in the Democratic. Yeah, party. right. I mean, people were. Yeah, people were talking about him running for president in, like, 2024 right. or something. So I, I think there is definitely a possibility that um, <clears throat> he can, you know, say, hey, you know, I did this. I, you know, worked through this, you know, and I've emerged a better person. And now I'm ready to go and, like, fight so that all veterans and that all people can have access to mental health service. You know, there's, there's sure. a story that can be told there. But I also think, again, it is in some ways probably a big political risk because in some ways you are admitting weakness which in today's political climate for a lot of people especially you know people on the on the trumpy side admitting weakness admitting fault apologizing you know admitting your struggles is just viewed as completely you know anathema to the presentation of political strength that is so important to people so it's going to be really interesting to see what happens next with him? Right, we're in the we're in the era of strongman politics, uh, which and it's it's come and gone in this country, but not quite to the extent I think that we have right now. Right, and I think we're all long overdue for you know kind of a reckoning of you know what what happened to veterans who served you know in the recent past. Um, that has never really, I feel like, been dealt with in a national level on a grand scale. And it was even kind of glossed over in this more recent election because Trump came out and said, like, well, I always was against the Iraq War, too. And then it was just never. Which isn't even fucking <laughs> true, by the way. But it was just then it was never just talked about. Right. And no one ever talks about it with Trump now. No one ever asks him about that now. And they still don't say you know, there's still all these problems with the VA that Trump is saying, like, hey, I'm going to fix the VA. I'm going to appoint my personal doctor to the VA and, you know, stuff like that. And then it went down in flames. And I don't even think they replaced anybody. It's just like the the deputy guy or whatever, just interim took right, over yeah. and stuff. So there's certainly a lot of things, you know, in that in that area, that policy area that are worth having serious discussions about. And we're in a political climate that's completely incapable of having a serious discussion of, you know, what that means. And I think probably a lot of those people who, you know, are Iraq veterans, um, you know, it seems like a lot of them are possibly Trump supporters. And, you know, there's a reckoning to be had with Trump's rhetoric not matching up with his actions of what he said he was going to do. You know, he's not really accomplishing it. And 
there needs to be more focus on that, I think. I think you're totally right. And it it, it bums me out that uh, there was a scheduling conflict and Nick Glessman couldn't be with us tonight because I know that he has a lot to say about this as a veteran of the Iraq war who also, you know, deals with, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from, uh, from those experiences. But mm, I don't know if I had anything more to say about that. I mean, I think he's in a particularly unusual position I did, with Dayton he had suffered depression um, with Cantor he suffers depression and PTSD and I think PTSD is still very poorly understood in this country um, and has been stigmatized in the past like the the idea of a, a a veteran who is out of control because of their experiences is is one that we we grew up with it was a pretty common trope in uh, in popular media and then right. discussions that relate to PTSD, like trigger warnings, you know, which is directly related to uh, the treatment of PTSD, that's become a, a joke phrase on the right, where triggering... Yeah, it's... yeah tr- They've weaponized yep. it. But, I mean, he's in, an, in some ways an ideal circumstance to at least participate in destigmatizing that discussion. I don't know how it'll affect him politically, but uh, the fact that he's bringing this discussion to the public, uh, you know, I think is, in, is a, for the greater good anyway. I, I, I think you're completely right. I think that it's, um, I think that anybody who has any sense of, like, fucking decency at this point can look at what Jason Kander has done, the decisions that he's made for himself and for his family and go, this, this was smart. Like we, it's, it's better that somebody who, even if you are a rising star in a political party or have, you know, this, this golden path ahead of you in politics that you make a, you make the smart decision. You make the, self-care decision in order to step down and uh it's it's been it's been a really interesting topic to cover uh max i don't know if you know that uh i am kind of in charge of uh men's lib on reddit uh which is uh the the it's (laughs) uh, not to toot our own horn but we are the premier men's issues spot on the internet that isn't really all about just yelling at women the whole time. Um, actually talking about men's issues and from the men's lib perspective, it's really amazing to see the courage for somebody in such a public position to come out and say, look, I'm having this problem. I am not the, the person that you want in public service right now. Uh, I I can be in the future, but I need to go through some treatment or take some time off or whatever. Admitting that kind of, that kind of uh, vulnerability is really an amazing thing to see from a, from a public person. Yeah, I agree. Um, I don't have much more else to say except that, um, it sure sounds like he's making the right decision, and uh, I I hope that this goes well for him, and I hope that his uh, his career in politics doesn't suffer as a result of this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it 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 speaks to uh, a higher commitment to the office that he was trying to get uh-huh. into that he's going to step down right now. Uh, instead of going for it anyway, which I, I think is it, it, it's just amazing. Yeah, I agree. So, so going going the opposite direction, um, <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about uh, there was a there was an article out of Oklahoma. Um, there was a uh, an assistant law dean at uh, Oklahoma State University Law School. No, I'm sorry. University of Oklahoma Law School, Brian McCall, the associate dean, uh, has stepped down from his position after people found some op-ed or maybe online comments that he made about how 
women should not wear pants. He he wrote that wearing women wearing pants is a sin. Yes. Yes, that's right. And and the reason it's a sin is because it is tempting to men if they what like if they see the outline of your ass i i don't i don't get that see that's 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 the part of the story i don't understand like you know that you can see women's asses if they like wear a right. skirt right <laughs> that's not what the bible says and that's what i trust yeah you know he apparently had um, a a chapter in his book called modest contact with the world women in pants and similar frauds <laughs> And yes, he. The summary is that Fra- fraudulent, fraudulent pant wearing. Look, I not not to uh, pull my lawyer card, but I am a lawyer. I can tell you that uh, wearing pants is not one of the elements of the the crime of fraud. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that this guy though. It's it's so amazing that yeah, I'm sure this guy also thought like, oh, rape culture, like that's not real, like that's a liberal myth. But also, right. like, women shouldn't wear pants because, you know, men men can't control themselves around pants wearing. <laughs> I mean, do you know if he's a religious guy? <laughs> I, I because so. I, I know that I know that in like fundamentalist circles and particularly in the past and, and in Christian circles in general, there was a real concept of dress modesty where uh Wearing clothes that are associated with the opposite gender was a violation of that. And the the whole thing about this being fraud sounds consistent with that. Like they're they're dressing in a manner that that you'd expect from a man, and you're defrauding someone by by not dressing in a way that's appropriate to your gender. But I, I'm just guessing here. I can't imagine what his his logic was. I mean, the fact that somebody, I would say, approximately 110 years after women started regularly wearing pants would write something like this. Uh, it, right. It just shows that he's coming from an ex- incredibly cloistered environment where they're, they're literally applying Victorian ideas of dress modesty. Victorian or, or even earlier yeah. than that. Okay. So I have the, I have the actual quote pulled up uh, in front of me. This is, this is out of uh, inside higher Um, Uh, Quoting the Oklahoma Daily. Okay, whatever. Um, He wrote that, quote, women must veil their form to obscure its contours out of charity toward men. To know that women in pants have this effect on men and to wear them is thus a sin against charity as well as modesty. (laughs) So it's literally what like ISIS says about women. Yeah, yeah oh, man, this guy must have had a real tough time trying to decide between you know if he would vote for for Trump or Hillary. This, <laughs> I I bet you one hundred percent that he is a huge fan of the Pence rule. <laughs> yeah, I bet you're right. I mean, there were there were pantsuits on both sides, but uh, in the right wing, there's <laughs> as far as I can tell, there's this concept that yes. Trump and his cronies are terrible people. They're vile sinners, but there are vile sinners, and it's okay because they because you need a sinner to go into a den of sin to do the work of God. And so there's right. this sort of vast excuse making made for Trump that wouldn't be made for anyone else. Well, clearly not. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's very clear <laughs> that they like he he doesn't even regularly go. To church, no. He, he's been to church literally like twice, I think, since he was inaugurated. And just and they just and say, just well, you know, he's busy. He's matters busy of state, right? <laughs> he's got a lot of golf to do. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. And and Brendan, I think I think that's totally right. Or, uh, bo- sorry, yes, I think both of you are totally right because when you hear what say Christian evangelicals say about this administration. That is literally the argument that they use, that he is, maybe he's an imperfect man, but maybe what we needed was a sinful man to bring out all of the sin in the, in the system. And then we can, we can excise that. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the overlap 
in that sense between the evangelical community and the, say the QAnon uh, conspirators or conspiracy theorists is really amazing. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, there is because you can't deal with Trump as he actually is and still be an ethical person. Um, a lot of groups are creating <laughs> these narratives, these sort of fictional super narratives about Trump, where he's something other than, you know, an egomaniacal kleptocrat who's in office purely on whim and is wildly incompetent, which I, right. well, I right. think is well, I mean, undeniable. Look at, too terrifying yeah, look a reality at, look to at how <laughs> Look at how Ben Garrison or John McNaughton portray him. And he's always this... You know, this Superman figure, mm-hmm. like, you know, broad shouldered, looking really good and young. Uh, they they have mythologized the guy uh, to the point of it's, it's absurd if you are actually watching what is going on. But it's part of their mythology at this yeah. point. I find it very similar to I remember when uh, Stephen Colbert's show used to be on uh, the Colbert Report and conservatives amazingly were able to convince themselves that Stephen Colbert was actually a conservative, but he was just like putting (laughs) on airs for this show. But in reality, he actually was, you know, a true conservative uh, at at heart. Oh my God. My grand, my granddad was one of them. Like he really enjoyed the Colbert report and thought that he was making good points. (laughs) I was like, you know that this is, it's, it's satire. It's like, well, Okay, yeah, but he's still making good points. <laughs> uh, it's it's pretty amazing. Terrifying. Yeah. I find it funny that I actually forgot that Trump was in town uh, this week. And he oh, that's did, right. He, he came and did a rally in Council Bluffs. And it's funny because it, it kind of coincided with the time where all of the media networks decided... Hey, you know, we don't actually need to like air these rallies <laughs> anymore because he really just doesn't say anything. But there was a there was an amazing moment where he uh, he started talking about the Kavanaugh hearings and uh, bad mouthing Diane Feinstein, uh, to which everyone started chanting, "Lock her up, lock her up!" Yeah, about Diane Feinstein, and then uh, he went on to say that the Democrats were essentially like an angry lawless mob um, <laughs> with, with no sense of irony at all, which was just just absolutely incredible to witness. I mean, it's one of the things that you have to come to terms with when addressing the right wing in this country, that there's no, and I think, I don't think it's accidental, but there's no internal consistency because a lot of what they do is for the sake of power. And so they'll say or do anything that works. And so you'll simultaneously sure. have the same people saying, oh, we can't we can't prosecute Kavanaugh. There's a presumption of innocence that's somehow being violated by even discussing this. And also shout locker up about Diane Feinstein, who there has been no accusations of criminality <laughs> against, right. except right. that she's a Democrat. Um Still legal yeah, and for the, the time being. <laughs> and, the, and the same people will talk about uh, how the Democrats want to institute a police state, you know, and <laughs> and they'll criticize like the deep state and they'll criticize the FBI and CIA and then immediately go into like the FBI should be investigating this person. Yeah. Well, I think something that we really want to remember in the future is that all of those people who said we need to get guns to protect ourselves against the tyranny of government actually are in favor of the tyranny of government. Like, if uh-huh. if they ever pull <laughs> those guns out, it'll be in defense of Trump, not uh, in an attempt yep. to remove him from office. Well, you know, he might, yeah, as long as he follows right. through with his, uh, you know, take the guns without due process uh, <laughs> yeah. law. <laughs> Literally the only politician I've ever heard say that that needs to be done. Um, but the NRA still supports him. Well, listen, y'all, this is this is all super dark. Uh, just like last week's uh, Spooktober episode, I think our lead-in is super spooky, but... The reason that we really invited Max on is to 
share with us a piece of his writing. So I think what we're going to do is take a break and you, the audience, can judge whether his story is spookier and scarier than what we've been discussing. Well, We'll be back. Nebraska State Fair is a fine state fair, but it doesn't have... When you go into the the State Fair of Texas, it's all of these, like, marble-pillared, uh, like, ivory-clad buildings that are around all of the different, uh, like, booths and all of the ridiculous fried food and stuff. Max, you were saying that uh, the, the Minnesota State Fair also has, like, structures in place? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, it's a uh, probably 17 square city blocks. It's a massive complex. Yeah, uh, which is so much fun. You know, I I love the state fair. I uh, that that was where we were today, uh, walking around, really not doing that much. We we bought a couple of cheap beers and just kind of walked around and looked at the booths and uh, people watched for the most part. It's it's amazing to see the incredible diversity of texas and how literally everybody shows up for it so you can just sit you know we're, we're just sitting there sipping on our our cheap shiner bock uh watching like families and couples and stuff go by and it was great because you see you know the the full spread of from young to old black white native american it it, it everybody is just there to have a good time and like win a Pikachu doll, um, throwing rings onto a, uh, floating like rubber ducky or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That's what the Minnesota state fair is like. We call it the great Minnesota get together. And it, yeah, it re- you really do just see an astonishing variety of humanity. I think it's amazing. It's just such a, a fun time. I I'm, wearing my the audience won't be able to see it but the people on skype uh can see my my state fair of texas t-shirt that i'm wearing today and you know it's it's a lot of fun you walk through the booths with the like as seen on tv uh products cleaning products or knives or whatever and uh you know it's it's fun to see them on tv it's way more fun to see them in person trying to Mm -hmm. do that same same sort of thing um we haven't done the uh the livestock yet uh that's that's one of my favorite things walk through and you know talk to these like 13 year olds who have been raising this cow for the past two years or whatever uh that's that's pretty cool i'm looking forward to that we'll we'll be back down there the thing goes for like a month my favorite is poultry um Mm. i i never really thought much about chickens until i started going to the state fair but some of them are just (laughs) so beautiful i can't i can't wrap my mind around it and they don't all make those classic chicken noises some of them are almost operatic in their uh right and the noises they make absolutely yeah and, and the uh the the plumage is amazing yeah. you know the ones yeah. with the little like floating feathers off the top of their head like a peacock or something yep. like that yeah wow oh, so good well Audience, I know that you have been waiting around for it, and we are going to deliver. We have invited Max Sparber on to give you our second episode of Spooktober's special feature. 
an original story by him. I wanted to say before we start that the music that you're going to hear um, to, to back Max up is by a friend of mine from Twitter. I call them Soup, uh, and that is what they <laughs> refer, prefer to be referred as. Uh, Soup has been very kind to provide us with this music. If you want to follow them on Twitter, they are at soup underscore reviews. They do actually review your soup. If you make a soup, they will <laughs> review it. Uh, they also make <laughs> they also make amazing music. So uh, hmm. I think it's time for me and Brendan to mute our microphones and let Max Barber share us a story of his. Well, this is a, a short story called The Cage that was published in an anthology called Fangs and Broken Bones. And that's an anthology of stories uh, associated with a website called Feed Your Monster. Um, and they typically are stories about monsters eating things, um, which this one very much is. Um, it's set in the 1930s in a hobo community, and it's a first person, so if I wind up sounding hobo-ish, that's the reason why. So the cage. Men die as they live. I know that's true. I've seen it in a cage hotel in Kansas City. You ever been to a cage hotel? Take an old warehouse, divide it up with plywood and chicken wire, fill it to overflowing with down-on-their-luck men who still got a quarter a night to pay for accommodations. That's your cage hotel. This one was no better than any other dark, dirty and stinking from the men who lived there. This was back, oh, dozen or so years ago, back in the summer, when all them falling stars came down. The owner of the hotel had found one of them rocks that fell from the sky. He used to like to show it off, show how it broke in the middle, and there was a big hole in it like it had come down with something inside it. Then he'd bang on a bell and tell us it was time to go to sleep, and he'd go round to the cages and lock them closed. Seems stupid in retrospect, but a locked door is part of what we paid for. It was supposed to keep our various possessions and particulars safe from sneak thieves. Sneak thieves. Like me. I always had a wire cutter with me, and night come, I would climb to the top of the cage and cut the wire there. There was maybe a foot and a half between the top of each room and the ceiling, just enough for a man to wriggle. Just enough for him to snip-snip into another room, climb down, and a rob an unawares sleeper. It also put me in the catbird seat for what was about to transpire, because I guess if a space rock breaks open, whatever was inside has got to go somewhere. Into the hotel it came like a big, spreading jelly. It came in and just slid its way through every crack and crevice, right into the first room where sleepy Pete Donovan was. True to his name, Sleepy Pete slept through it. The jelly came up around him like rising water, surrounding him. I could see Pete inside the jelly for a moment, suspended there, looking peaceful. Then he opened his eyes for a second, surprised, and then he just sort of dissolved and was gone. Sleepy Pete was the only one to sleep through it. The jelly was making a hell of a racket, and all the sleepers woke, and they all saw what was happening and how fast it was happening. That's when the panic started. The jelly just went from room to room. Ben the Blade was in the next room. He whipped out his trusty jackknife and stabbed at the thing, but his hand just went into it. And when he pulled back, there wasn't no hand. He just had time to scream. Others were shouting, kicking at the doors, trying to tear open the chicken wire to get away, hands bleeding from the effort. I myself was moving fast as I could across the top of the cages, belly crawling. But every time I looked down, the jelly was underneath me. Old, skimmy <clears throat> Old skinny Sam went next. He shoved himself up against a chicken wire wall, and the jelly hit him so hard he went right through the wire, sliced into little pieces, and the jelly just swept him up. I crawled above the next cage, and there was nervous Tim Fleming. He scampered under his bed. The jelly flowed over the bed and then through it. It flipped the bed, and I could see nervous Tim underneath glued. 
Tim stared up at me, wide eyes, and then called out for help. And then, well, the jelly just sort of pulled nervous Tim through the slats in the bed. It broke him into three pieces and yanked each piece through a slat. I crawled to the next cage, and it was Mike the firebug, looking frantic and crazy. As the jelly poured into his room, Mike broke off a leg of it bed, wrapped his shirt around it, and put his lighter to the shirt. For a moment, the jelly stayed back, and Mike the firebug continued to wave his burning shirt at it, calling out triumphantly. But then the jelly rose up and engulfed the man entirely. Inside it, you could briefly see Mike the firebug, his improvised torch pressed up against him, burning his face down to the skull. Then the flame was snuffed, and Mike was gone. I had reached the end of the cages, and I jumped down to the floor. I made for the windows, determined to jump out and leave the sounds of screaming men behind me. I knew the jelly was behind me, but I didn't know how close until until I put my hand on the window and made to climb out. The jelly rolled up onto one of my hands, grabbing three of my fingers, and I knew it would soon work its way up the rest of my hand, and I would be done. I didn't think twice about it. I made a decision, and out the window I went. You live as you die, and that's a fact, but sometimes you live instead, if you're willing to lose something in the process. They used to call me Clippers Franklin, you know, but now they call me Three Finger Joe. Yeah, thank you, Max. I mean, I don't know. We we probably did this backwards because I don't know if we're going to be able to get a higher high note than that <laughs> wonderfully told story. It was very uplifting. I found it invigorating. It's a story of survival. <laughs> <laughs> An uplifting tale. So, yeah, my high note this week is that uh, some Nebraska politicians were uh, getting some national attention. Democratic congressional candidate for the Omaha area... Kara Eastman appeared on the Young Turks That's right. uh, to do a segment. Yes, she did. And she, you know, has previously gotten shout outs from uh, the like Pod Save America guys did a piece with her and stuff <laughs> on one of their thingamajigs. For whatever and, that's worth. You know, a bunch of other shows. <laughs> but it's really cool. And it's it's amazing to me that for so long, so many Democrats in Nebraska would say like, oh, why do I even bother running? You know, it's not like a Democrat's ever going to win. But in some ways, if you're one of these red state Democrats, it's not always about winning. You know, it's about getting your message out there Absolutely. and it's about owning the message and, you know, not letting the other side set the perspective and have everything be told from their perspective. It's important to just get out there and share your voice, you know, let your issues be part of the conversation so that they don't get to set what is considered relevant political discussion. It would be amazing if she won, even if she doesn't win. It's amazing just to have voices from the Midwest who are progressive be able to get national attention and have people see, oh, hey, you know, maybe Nebraska isn't exactly what I thought it was. <clears throat> and, you know, there are people out there fighting the good fight. Well, I logged on to YouTube today. I don't remember what I was pulling up, but the ad that played right before it was Betta O'Rourke not doing an actual campaign pitch. He was just talking about Texas voter registration. He It was literally mm-hmm. just, it was a sponsored ad so that people who were on YouTube in Texas would know, like, look, you've got basically 48 hours to get your voter registration in. And I think that's tremendous. I think that's an amazing thing to do. Um, They obviously must have spent campaign funds to do it. And it wasn't a pitch for Beta O'Rourke. It was just a pitch for get your voter registration. Like, I want to notify the people. Cynically, that's going to help him. The more people register in Texas, the more people are going to be voting for O'Rourke. But... The the ad itself was really nice. Just yeah, yeah. You didn't see Ted Cruz doing that shit. Did you see the <laughs> other uh, Beto ad where it's a old Texan guy talking about Ted Cruz and he says, "Oh uh, yeah," he says, ah, "If somebody talked about my my wife the way he did, I wouldn't 
shake his hand. I'd take him oh, up to the man. woodshed and I'd kick his ass. Yeah. This is this is what I <laughs> was Matt, saying. did you write this ad? Because you literally said this like I two did. weeks ago. I was so mad about that two weeks ago during the <laughs> debates when the topic came up about how Donald Trump treats Ted Cruz like shit. And literally all Beto had to do was say, well, as a Texan, like, I would just punch a guy in the face. Yeah. If he said something like that about my <laughs> wife or my dad, you know, like he he would have won the election in one fell swoop. The debate would have been over if he had done that, but he didn't. He's he's a Democrat. Had to be the bigger man. Had to be the Democrat. That ad was directed by uh, Richard Linklater, which was no amazing. Shit. Oh, that explains it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The actor who was in it is in that Richard Linklater film about the funeral director who commits murder. But it stars Jack Black. It's actually a terrific film. It's set in oh, Texas. Bernie. Bernie, yeah. So he that actor gets on and talks about sort of the, the, the Texas is basically five or six mini states yeah. that all have very different personalities, and it, it's basically the same performance. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're we're bigger than a lot of like European countries down here. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's very strange that you can go from. Uh, like the DFW Metroplex or Austin or Houston or San Antonio or you go way out toward like Garland or something. And it it is not there's there's nothing that unites us as a state other than some sort of like weird state patriotism. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange <laughs> place. Uh, no, I agree. As a state that has very little like state allegiance, it is very well, strange Nebraska, to experience. Nebraska is absolutely like that too, because you basically have like Omaha and Lincoln, and then maybe Kearney, right. but the yeah. rest of it is it's all farm country. It's all corn country. Max, is it is it kind of the same in Minnesota? It used to be, or it used to be like Omaha. I lived in Omaha for nine years, um, and it's a place with a very sort of limited sense of itself. Um, yeah, yeah. sort of a li- limited sense of what it means to be Omaha and what it means to be Omaha. When I was a boy in Minneapolis, Minneapolis was really seen as being sort of an undifferentiated Midwestern city. But in the past 10 or 15 years, maybe a little bit more, there's really been developing this really specific Minnesota identity. I, I'm not quite sure what triggered it, but uh, yeah, you'll, you know how you can go to any place in Texas and everything you can buy is in the shape of Texas. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's now true in Minnesota. We've, the shape of Minnesota is, is just about on everything. Do, do you blame a Prairie Home Companion? <laughs> I think a Prairie Home Companion was part of it. Um, I, I, I think it was an early example of somebody saying, here, here are things that are unique about Minnesota. I think it really did set in place something that we call the monomyth, kind of the idea that Minnesotans are all these Lutheran bachelor farmers, which is not the <laughs> right, case at yeah. all. In fact, the current Minnesota identity is much weirder than than Prairie Home Companions, far more northern. There's a lot of like lumberjack influence. And northern Minnesota is just, it, compared to southwestern and southeastern Minnesota, which is where Prairie Home Companion was set, it's just these kind of wild loggers up there. So yeah. it's got a very different culture up there. Right. Well, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't MSP have one of the biggest like refugee or like immigrant populations in the United States. Yeah, uh, it's a big settlement. It has long been a big settlement spot for uh, for refugees. So when I was a boy, there were a lot of Hmong who settled here. And then when I entered college, it started being a massive settlement of uh, refugees from Eastern Africa, from Somalia right. and Ethiopia. Yeah, so I've lived in a number of neighborhoods that were largely refugee neighborhoods. Are, are, those are. I, I assume that those are no go zones for white men. I, I saw that on Twitter once. Somebody was like, Down, "Downtown Minneapolis is a no go zone for the police." I was like, "I'm writing to you from downtown Minneapolis right now, so no, it's it's fine." Yeah. Do you feel like those immigrant populations? The myth is that immigrants or refugees come here and they don't they don't interface with the community. They, they right. don't talk to anybody. They don't ever become real Americans. Uh, what's your perspective on that as somebody who's been around those communities through your life? I mean, there's I have two perspectives. The first is that it's not true, that yeah. uh, often 
an older generation has a harder time assimilating because they're new to a place, but their their children assimilate. When you don't speak the goddamn language, man, it's it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to it's, make friends if you don't speak English. And English is a very, very hard language. Um, sure. And then, you know, Minnesota used to have entirely German-speaking communities. Um, all of these immigrant groups more or less assimilated. But my second perspective is fuck assimilation. I'm I'm not a fan of it. I think <laughs> I don't think you gain from it. I think you just lose. So I if, if these recent immigrants want to develop like a a very strong Hmong American or uh, East African American identity that maintains a lot of these traditions without assimilating them, I'm 100% in favor of that. I think we just benefit from it. I think that's great. I mean, I we have, you know, I'm mostly Irish descended and mm. the nice parts about it have been appropriated into once a year we all get super fucking drunk and have a parade. Yeah. You know, that seems okay to me. I, I'm also Irish American and I think, although I was adopted by a Jewish family, so I have a sort of a blended uh, ethnic identity. Um, but my Irish American identity is a very strong identity. Obviously growing up, my primary access to it was St. Paddy's Day. I used to live in New Orleans and I feel about St. Paddy's Day the same way that I felt about like Mardi Gras. Yeah. Mardi Gras, exactly. Where when you first start experiencing it, it's like just this explosion of tackiness. But then after a <laughs> while, it's like you just start to love it. I've, I'm 100% in favor of St. Paddy's Day, which is an Irish American holiday. It's a very, in fact, it used to be a very different holiday in Ireland in that it was a religious holiday, but they've absorbed a lot of elements of the uh, Irish-American St. Paddy's Day. I worked with a man for a while who had a theory about the American melting pot. Mm. And his his theory was that it's not so much a melting pot as a bunch of different types of people try to come here and then make their own lives. The ones who succeed are the ones who did it voluntarily. Mm like Hmong immigrants or East African refugees probably count as that. They were the, the people who were able to make the decision to come here. Uh, and going back in time, you have the Irish or the, the Polish or the Italians or whomever came over. There's like a hazing ritual in our country. And then yeah. you become American and all of those associations, all of those different ethnicities and nationalities have done pretty well here with the exception of like the two groups of people where it was done to them, not voluntarily. And that would be mm -hmm. black Americans and the Native Americans. Well, from my perspective, the melting pot was always a, a myth of developing an integrated society that that draws equally from everybody's heritage and instead what you wind up with with real assimilation is buying into whiteness and to the privileges that come with whiteness yeah and in almost every instance it means subtracting things that challenge whiteness that challenge privilege and both of my communities the jewish community and the irish community made a very active decision to buy into whiteness and to recast themselves as white when previously with the Irish up until maybe the 1890s to the 1910s, they were not considered white. And then they they sort of pushed themselves into whiteness. And with Jews, that lasted up until the 30s and 40s. And if you ask the white nationalists, the Jewish community still doesn't count <laughs> yeah. as white. Well, if you ask the, uh, the extreme racists, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of Jews at this point are white nationalists, even though they hypothetically would suffer from white nationalism. I think the the architect of white nationalism in the White House is Stephen Miller, and he is Jewish. I, I think it's a, a rather desperate ploy to uh, benefit from whiteness, but uh, nonetheless, it, it's what happens. And we removed everything about Judaism and everything about the Irish identity that might challenge that. And it was a lot of it. It's why the Irish identity has been re primarily reduced to um, an occasional cultural expression and why the Jewish identity has largely been reduced to a religious identity when it is, in fact, a very strong cultural identity with a, a, a long background in part in, in leftist activism. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not in favor of the melting pot. You guys are responsible for, like, Jewish Bolshevism or cultural Marxism or whatever. <laughs> Jews aren't exclusively lefty, um, but there is a, a historic tradition of things like the Jewish Bund, which was a workers' organization that was explicitly socialist. It was non-religious. 
It was concerned with social issues. And the Bund doesn't exist anymore. You do find Jews who are still involved in leftist activism, but uh, for the most part, the Jewish community has bought pretty heavily into the status quo of America. Yeah, well, I mean, as far as the conspiracy theory goes, I can't imagine why a historic underclass would have decided to rebel against capitalism and some of their best scholars go on to be scholars of anti-current power structures. Mm -hmm. And I find it kind of fascinating. There was a recent survey done where they interviewed people about their political alignments and their race. And they found that for Hispanics who were politically aligned with conservatism and republicanism, they actually had a much higher incidence of self-reporting as white, which is, you know, kind of an ongoing transition where You know, you saw this, I think, particularly with like the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman situation where, you know, people were saying, oh, he's white. And then they were like, well, actually, he's Hispanic. So they're they're both people of color. He's Cuban, right? I think he's of Cuban descent. Right. And, you know, there's people out there like Marco Rubio and things like that where and even Ted Cruz. Right. And and Beta O'Rourke, where they're both trying to, like, claim this this mantle of white Hispanicness where they're kind of Hispanic, but they're also kind of white. And it just it was surprising to me because, you know, I guess in some ways I did think of, you know, Hispanics as a distinctly different ethnic group where those lines are actually getting quite blurry. And it just shows that even for that group, in order for them to think of themselves as kind of true conservatives, that political affiliation almost has a requirement of of whiteness associated with Mm -hmm. it. So it's easier for them to say, yes, this is me. I'm in the in group. And it'll be interesting to see kind of what political consequences that has going forward, because right now it seems like the political establishment within the Republican Party is quite uh, anti-Hispanic and uh, anti-immigrant. But that is something that could possibly shift over time as these you know, self-identification trends emerge. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was a real movement to try and bring in Hispanic voters because they are a growing demographic and they they do have a historic tendency towards conservatism, uh, you know, come from Catholic background. Right. Uh, Cubans in particular, a lot of them are the relatives of people who fled the revolution. So they're opposed to so they're sort of opposed to socialism and and things that they think of as socialist um and that was a really growing movement so you find all these hispanic politicians who entered in during that time period and then all of a sudden trump came along and reversed that wholeheartedly i think i think him and his cronies said no the the future of the republican party is white nationalism Uh, i don't think trump said that. i don't think he can articulate thoughts like that but I, (laughs) i think the people that came with him really did think if we can squelch voters of color, if we can appeal to uh, unhappy white people, um, and if we can control immigration from countries where primary immigrants are people of color because they do have a tendency to to vote Democratic, then maybe the Republican Party has a future. Um, I think that there was a real deliberate decision there. And so these politicians who are Hispanic or Latino, uh, Latinx in the party have been forced to do what is fundamentally unconscionable, which is, you know, sort of buy into whiteness at the expense of, of their own uh, families and the expense of a lot of their constituency. Right. Well, I think that's uh, an interesting way to lead into what my high note is tonight. And this is, this takes us out of our uh, regional bailiwick. Uh, usually we focus on Midwestern, Great Plains sort of things, but tonight Hurricane Michael is absolutely fucking oh, yeah. battering the Florida Panhandle, and I wanted to give a shout to the Tallahassee DSA, who have created a crisis fund. Uh, we will link that in the uh, show description, but we have there are comrades down there, uh, even in the incredibly conservative area of the Florida panhandle raising money to make sure that people are going to be able to survive this storm and get through what they're going through. I think it's amazing. I I think that it feeds into what we were just discussing 
particularly because Florida gets a lot of these refugees. People come up through the Gulf or up through Florida and end up in the Florida panhandle. So we've got comrades out there who are actively helping exactly the people that we're talking about right now, um, showing that socialism does actually work on a community level, even if you fled, maybe if your family fled communist Cuba. Yeah, I think it's really amazing in the wake of natural disasters like that to see that those principles of community working together, helping each other really come out of the woodwork because it's really hard to like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be 100% self-reliant when there's like 150 mile an hour winds devastating everything (laughs) around you. You've got, you got three feet of water in your house, you know, like it, it doesn't matter how many guns you have or how many cans of food, like you've got to get your kids out of here, man. Like they aren't three feet tall. As frustrating as governmental response may sometimes be in the the wake of natural disasters, communal responses and individual responses and and group responses tend to be some of the best of humanity. Yeah, it's yeah. it's been unbelievable down here. Uh, you know, during Hurricane Harvey demolishing Houston, there were all of these stories about just people with boats going down there, putting their boats in because like now you can you know drive your boat up a highway uh and just grabbing people getting people's Mm -hmm. pets getting them to dry land it's it's an amazing thing oh man not to ruin my own high note but i think we are going to (laughs) see i think we are going to see a lot more of that stuff as climate change starts to happen but you know for now solidarity with the the tallahassee dsa and all of their all of their efforts uh during this storm uh, Max, did you have a, yeah. a high note? As you mentioned, I tend to spend a lot of time on Twitter. And one of the things I did early on was I, I was pretty particular about who I followed. And so I wanted to make sure I followed people who were... It took you fucking forever to follow me back. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still offended. Um, I tend to follow people <laughs> who represent experiences that I haven't had. So uh, people of color... Um, follow a, a large number of Native Americans. M- Minneapolis is a very large urban Native community, and so I grew up... Me being a uh, dumbass and you not being a dumbass. Yeah, no, I, I see <laughs> it. Fair, yeah, sure. fair. Um, and so what I've witnessed over the last couple of days, because there were two national events that happened yesterday and today. One of them was National Mental Health Day, and one of them was National Coming Out Day. And so at least when I'm not on Twitter um, fighting with shitheads... There were an awful lot of people who were either expressing their stories and uh, and and sharing their experiences um, in order to normalize these experiences, or there were people actively supporting that. As toxic as I think Twitter might sometimes be, it's stuff like that that I think makes it still worthwhile to be able to see these communities come together to support um, experiences that would otherwise not be validated or, or would be excluded from the national conversation. Absolutely. Twitter tends to amplify both the best and the worst of human behavior. And I think it's easy yeah. for us to get dragged down into the worst, but it's an amazing place for particularly people with marginalized who, who belong to a marginalized group to identify and amplify each other. Yeah, absolutely. I love to see that stuff. I, I was uh, reminded of uh, that that Twitter video of that woman singing the, like, Scary Time for Boys song. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that went viral recently. Yeah, um, that, that was, was great. definitely something amazing to see, you know, come out of, you know, all of the, the horrible headlines that have been happening to, to see that there are people out there that, you know, recognize how, how ridiculous uh, all of this is and, and can speak to it so eloquently. I think all of those are excellent high notes. As we go through this spooktober, things are, they seem to be getting more dire, but I, I hope that our show is is helping to remind people of, there are some good things happening out there still. Like, for instance, we had Max Barber on the show. Max. That was pretty cool. It's It's been a delight, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the invite. I'll give you the, the chance to promote yourself. Do you have anything that you'd like to plug, or where can people find you online? I mean, if people are interested in my writing, they can go to maxbarber.com. Um, I've got a link there, although I think it's currently broken to my Amazon <laughs> author's page. Um, so I, I'll have to go in and, 
and fix that. Um, I do my own podcast with my girlfriend. We we often write projects together, and so we have a podcast about the experience of trying to uh, work professionally in the creative field called uh, Wild North Creative, and that's available on Amazon and probably wherever else you can get podcasts. Yeah, we'll link that through the uh, oh, Liquid great. Flannel Twitter also. Um, and that's about it. That's a, that's all I've got to promote for myself. <laughs> You're on Twitter, though. You're, like, awesome on Twitter. Where, where can people see you on Twitter? <laughs> Yeah, I'm at Max Barber, and there's a couple of projects I do there. I've been I've been trying to write about, and particularly this time of year, about a thousand novelty horror songs, and I'm up to a little bit more than 500. So oh, I'll be, doing, so I'll be doing that until the end of the year. Um, I do a poem on there every single day, and lately I've been doing what I call two sentence horror stories, which are just they're essentially a joke um, or a setup punchline, but the setup is something ordinary, and the punchline <laughs> is something horrific. Um, so you can find those on my Twitter page, along with watching me yell at dunderheads. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been following the the two sentence horror stories, and I've been delighted that none of them have to do with baby shoes. <laughs> Still time. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have put that thought in my head. <laughs> Max, we're we're delighted to have you on the show. Brendan Williams, where can they find you online? They can find me at the Twitters on Brendan Williams with one L. Thank you. He's a he's a very good Twitter follow. I am on Twitter myself at Matt the Great with the W. You can follow the show uh, as I'm sure you know on Twitter at liquid underscore flannel. Uh, follow us on SoundCloud. Like us on uh, iTunes. I, I think that having such an august guest on tonight is going to really help our ratings so i i hope so maybe the eight people who listen to my podcast will come on (laughs) (laughs) that was the plan listeners you can get in on the ground floor by saying you listen to the liquid flannel podcast we're signing off for tonight happy spooktober thanks again max thank you thank you Oh, that was really good. Holy shit, that was good.